Well, good morning, everyone. Lovely to be here this morning. My name's Marshall. I'm one of the pastors, and uh, it's my privilege to be able to share with you uh, this morning from God's Word. We're continuing on with a series uh, of three on the book of Psalms, and specifically uh, on the Messianic Psalms. Last week we did Psalm 2. Today we're doing Psalm 22. Next week will we be doing Psalm 110. Where are you, God? That was a cry of John Mark Hicks on 30th of April, 1980. Today, Hicks is an author and a, a theologian. He's written a book called Anchors of the Soul, which recounts the story of him losing his wife, Sheila. Uh, John and Sheila had been married just for three years when Sheila died suddenly while recovering from surgery. They'd had their future all mapped out. They were going to be missionaries in Germany. Since they got married, they'd been preparing to go. John says, we had planned, prayed and pursued so much, but on April 30, 1980, all of those dreams crashed to the ground. The pillars of my faith were shaken by her death and cracks began to emerge. Why had God not preserved the life of my spouse? Those questions, why God? Where are you, God? They're actually not questions that we need to go to a book to find asked because they're questions that for many of us are much closer to home. Where are you, God, when my parent was in constant pain and suffering? Where are you, God, when my baby died? Where were you, God, when I got cancer? Questions that threaten to shake our faith to the core, that threaten our trust in a loving God and the promises he makes. They're the questions that the writer of Psalm 22 is wrestling with. Why, God, have you forsaken me? The author, King David, shows us that even the righteous who fear God suffer the effects of evil and sin in the world. But we'll see that there's another layer to this psalm as well. As I said, this is one of what we call the Messianic Psalms. It's the second psalm in our three-part series, as I said, that speaks about God's anointed King, the Son of God, the Messiah. Psalm 22 isn't just a psalm about innocent suffering in our world but it is about that of course and how the godly how we can respond to that but this it's also about the suffering of Jesus God's Messiah himself and we'll see that Jesus shared in our suffering he identifies with us in our suffering and most of all he was broken for us so that one day we could be made whole. Let's pray as we come to God's word. Father God, we thank you 
that you're a God who knows suffering. You're a God who participates in our suffering. You don't just sit out there, sit far away on a throne looking at us from a distance, but you're a God who came to be with us, who came to suffer with us, who came to die with us and to die for us. Please help us to understand that more deeply today. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Psalm 22 can be divided into three parts, and they'll be our three points. Firstly, verses 1 to 13, which is David's cry of abandonment, that God has left him to his enemies, what we call lament. Then 14 to 21 is is the effect of what his enemies have done to him. They have left him broken. Every part of his body has been affected. And then our third part, 22 to 31, we see a shift as the psalmist sees God come through for him and rescue him. It's a song of praise that God listens to the afflicted. So our first point is, some, is verses 1 to 13. Why don't you answer me? And the tone is set by the first verse. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of angry, anguish? Literally, that word translated anguish means roaring. Roaring words. David is desperate here. This is no polite inquiry. He's at the end of his resources and he roars at God, desperately needing to hear from him. Day and night he cries out and he hears nothing from God, verse 2. And he gets no rest. The cause of David's suffering, as we'll see in a moment, is that he's being chased by his enemies, unfairly persecuted. But that's only part of the story because there's a deeper source of pain for David. His real cause of anguish is the silence from God. It's the belief from verse 1 that God has forsaken him, that God has abandoned him. You see, David can handle, and we see in other Psalms, David can handle any number of enemies coming up against him and attacking him if only God is with him. He trusts that God can fight his battles and defend him no matter what the odds against him are. But if God has turned his back on him, there's nowhere else to turn. There's no protector. There's no refuge. And for us, when we suffer, it's when God seems silent that the pain becomes almost unbearable. When we lose a loved one, if our prayers for comfort or for God to show his kindness seem to just bounce off the ceiling with cruel indifference. When someone close to us is suffering with a painful illness and our prayers for relief seem to get unanswered. 
We feel like we're abandoned. We feel like we're left as orphans in a cold universe. Just as David felt abandoned by God. But then surprisingly, you'll notice that the tone changes. He suddenly goes from complaint to praise, reminding himself that God has been faithful to Israel through their history, that he has carried them and saved them in the past. And he draws comfort from that. Have a look at verse 3. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted you and you delivered them. And then down in verse 10 and 11, uh, this time it's much more personal. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you even at my brother's breast. From birth I was cast on you from my mother's womb. You have been my God. What's going on here? Why this jumping around uh, between complaint and praise. It feels like David can't make up his mind whether to shake his fists at God or, or to fall down on his knees. Well, what's going on is a very human response. That's how our, our emotions work. I don't know if you've noticed that when you're going through grief, perhaps you're going through grief or suffering right now, and you notice that process, that especially in times of tumult or suffering, there's an internal wrestling match going on and you oscillate between despair and hope. And that's what's going on here with David. He's trying to grasp onto hope, desperately trying to cling on to his trust in God, even at the point that he feels abandoned. His situation seems hopeless. He describes his enemies as wild, powerful animals. Have a look at verse 12. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. David isn't describing a specific situation here. Because it's meant to be generic. And like all the Psalms, it's meant to be a model for us as God's people. You see, these are words of pain that we can use when we're in pain and we can't find our own words. And the way that David cries out with these roaring words against God invites us to do the same thing when we're in pain. To cry out with raw honesty to God. Where are you, God? What are you doing? And then the way that David clings to faith, remembering God's faithfulness and goodness in the past, is something that can help us through the darkness as well. To use these words about what God has done in the past, even when there are no words of hope on our lips. Well, in the second section of the psalm, 14 to 21, David continues his complaint. He describes the effects of his suffering 
in very physical ways. His body is broken, he says, verses 14 to 21, because his enemies are pursuing him. Have a look at verse 14, 15. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax and has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. His whole body is affected. It's broken. Now remember a moment ago I said that David's suffering is a model for our suffering and and it's meant to express the experience of all God's people. But this section is a bit different. This section is a model but in a different way because it's much more specific. It points to one individual and we know that because the New Testament describes how this passage is fulfilled as Jesus died on the cross. We won't turn to it, but John 19 in particular is the place we can see most clearly Jesus' broken body on the cross working out these words in history. His mouth was dried up, his tongue stuck to his jaw and he cried out as he lay dying on the cross, I am thirsty. Verse 17, it said, says, the people stare and gloat over me just as the crowd stood watching Jesus and many hurled insults at him. Then very specifically, the words of verse 18 are fulfilled where it says, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. We will have a look at John 19, 23. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them with the undergarment remaining. Very specifically worked out, working out the words of Psalm 22. And then the most extraordinary of all, we find in the account of Jesus' death, a cry of roaring words as he hung there on the cross, this time from Matthew's Gospel. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The same words that begin Psalm 22. And what this tells us, that it's, no, that it's not just this section 14 to 21 that is about Jesus, but actually the whole psalm is about Jesus. In the Hebrew world, if someone quoted the first lines of a passage of Scripture, that was kind of shorthand to saying that they are referring to the whole passage the whole psalm or whatever passage of scripture it is. It is. And so when Jesus starts with the words of Psalm 22, it's his way of identifying himself with everything that goes on in this psalm, saying that he is the fulfilment of the words of the whole psalm. It's even though there's no mention of God's chosen king, 
He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. He's talking about his own experience of being delivered by God. He was the afflicted one. Now again, we're not given any details about how God delivered him. But remember, as David writes, his words are meant to be a template looking ahead to a future event. And like the last section, this is specifically looking forward to the event of the cross, of God's chosen one, his Messiah, dying for us. And what's different, interesting, is that the deliverance of the Messiah who was afflicted will also lead to the deliverance of many others who were afflicted. Have a look at verse 26. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. Now the word there for poor is actually the same word back in 24 for the afflicted one. So the afflicted will eat and be satisfied. The one who suffered. In other words... God rescued the suffering, afflicted Messiah and the suffering, afflicted people shall now eat and be satisfied. It seems like the Messiah identifies particularly with the suffering. He describes himself as afflicted, one who suffers. And the group he singles out for God's particular care and blessing of those who suffer. How will this come about? Well, it will come about as a direct result of the Messiah being rescued by God. We saw in verses 20, 14 to 21 that a description of Jesus suffering on the cross, that his body was broken by his enemies but we know from the gospel accounts that he didn't stay on the cross three days later the tomb was empty the stone was rolled away he didn't stay dead God had answered his prayers by raising him from the dead when he died on the cross it looked like Jesus had lost it looked like his enemies had won the day. But the resurrection showed that it was Jesus who won in the end. His enemies of sin and evil were defeated once and for all. And friends, it's that that makes all the difference for us. That means that we too now have a different story to tell. Suffering caused by the evil and sin of this world no longer has the last laugh. It doesn't mean that we are now spared pain in life. It doesn't mean that we don't suffer. We are still hit in the teeth by the evil of the world. But now, because of Jesus, we no longer need to be destroyed by it. We'll still be pummeled and knocked down by the cruelty of suffering. But Jesus died on the cross 
so that we could come out the other side without being destroyed. And coming out the other side when we are in the midst of something is a future event, isn't it? And the deliverance described in this section is also looking to the future. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. may not be now, but the time will come. And then the psalmist shows that this deliverance isn't just for the afflicted either. Verse 27, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. The whole earth will worship him. His dominion, his kingship will cover every nation. This is the language picked up in the New Testament to describe the authority of King Jesus after he has conquered death. You may remember at the end of Matthew's Gospel uh, in Matthew 28 when he's talking to his disciples after he has risen from the dead before he ascends into heaven. He says, all authority has been given to me. So go and make disciples of all nations. A fancy word for, for, for that is that it's eschatological language, which means it's talking about the end times when Jesus will return. And so the psalmist here is looking forward to that same time where suffering, suffering will continue to be a reality here on this earth now, but a time is coming when all things will be made right in this broken world under King Jesus. And that includes an end to our suffering and pain. Another part of everything being made right in the world is described in verse 29. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. This completes the picture of everyone, the whole world, being affected by what Jesus has done by being when he is uh, rescued from the cross, when he rises from the dead. Here it's the opposite of the afflicted. Remember, the, the afflicted are lifted up. The rich of the earth. Literally the word for them is the fat ashes. The fat ashes of the earth. Unlike the afflicted who are lifted up, the picture here is of the rich and powerful fat ashes being brought low. They're made to face their weakness and mortality. They're being brought down to the dust. And as they do that, they are brought face to face with King Jesus. And they're made to bow their knee before him. And so the whole earth, the afflicted and the poor, all the families of the nations, the rich and the powerful, will all come to bow down to Jesus as king. Some willingly, some not willingly. But this king of kings, who rightly rules over all people and all nations with all authority, 
identifies himself as a suffering king. And he places himself particularly with the suffering, the lowly, the poor. And if we are to be his people and follow in his footsteps, we are called to follow, to to do the same. And as we finish off, I've got two points of application. One, as God's people, we are to walk with the afflicted and we are to recognise our own affliction. The first part of that is quite straightforward. We are to walk with the afflicted. The Bible is overflowing with commands to look after the poor, the widowless, the fatherless, the afflicted. A good measure of how much we actually understand what Jesus has done for us is how we show love in real ways to those who most need it, both in the church and outside the church. I've talked quite a lot before about uh, how, what that might look like, so I'm not going to major on that today other than to say a great way to get involved with that, to serve the poor and the afflicted, is to get involved with our food distribution ministry, uh, starting up shortly. But I want to briefly think about the second part of that application that we need to recognise our own affliction. Have a look at verse 26 again. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. As we saw earlier, it can be translated as the afflicted will eat and be satisfied. And notice how they are described. They are described as people who seek the Lord. And that's unlike the rich who don't see their need for God. That's exactly why Jesus says in Matthew 5, blessed are the poor in spirit. Because those who are are afflicted, those who are suffering, see their own emptiness. They know their need for God. And if you are suffering, you know what that looks like, where you've got no, at the end of your resources, you've got nowhere else to turn to. But in fact, all of us are poor. All of us are afflicted by a poverty of spirit, whether we recognise it or not. God draws near to us when we see our emptiness and look to fill that void with him. Not with money, not with stuff, not with projects or success. It's when we recognise our poverty that God meets us where we are. Second, final application point. I want to finish off where we began. I want to finish um, off with the words of Psalm 22. My God, my God... Why have you forsaken me? To to Jesus, to the psalmist, it seemed like God had abandoned him when he needed him most. And that's often our experience in suffering, isn't it? Where are you, God? We cry at our point of greatest need. And it seems like God has walked away from us. But this psalm reminds us 
that it's at that very point when God seems to have gone AWOL that he is actually most at work. Remember that Jesus cried those same words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At the very time that he was defeating the powers of darkness through his death, at the very moment that he was changing the history of the world, what seemed like the time when evil reigned was actually God's greatest victory. And in our lives, those darkest of times when God seems nowhere to be found are actually the times that he wants to do a special work in us, moulding us, shaping us, refining us. We may not see what God's doing at the time, We may not even see it looking back in hindsight, or at least not in full. But we can know with certainty that our suffering King is there with us in the darkness and the tears. Let's pray. I'll get get, uh, Becky back up. Father God, thank you that you call us to cry with raw honesty, words of lament. You want us to be honest with you. But thank you, God, for the news that uh, in those times when it may seem like you have abandoned us, you are actually closest to us. You are doing a work in us. And we can know that you are with us because Jesus cried those same words that he died and suffered more than we can ever know. And he did that for us. Amen.